Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Simon Sweetman. This is brought to you as always by Tea Leaf Tea and Yeasty Boys. Uh, this is a conversation I had with John Wareham. Uh, how to describe John? He is a an author, uh, a businessman. Um, he has been a poet, a playwright, a novelist. He's written a memoir. Um, he grew up in Wellington and then moved overseas, lived in America for a long time, um, started working uh, in prisons, helping with writing uh, courses and guides and, and teaching in prisons, teaching people to reach inside themselves and, and bring out their stories to better themselves, um, teaching people to uh, tips uh, to overcome and, and wrestle with addiction. Um, it's worth mentioning that John's children uh, include Louise Wareham, the fantastic writer, and Dean Wareham, the musician who you probably know from his bands Galaxy 500 and, and Luna. So whilst this is a conversation with John about all of the things he's done, we do talk about the children in, in brief. Uh, they, they need to be mentioned because of what they've done and who they are. Um, this is my first proper time meeting John. In fact, I met him a couple of weeks before this conversation. He came to a poetry reading that I was doing, and, and it was an open mic. I was the guest, but a few other people were performing. So he got up and, and said some poems. He stuck around and watched me. We had corresponded a few years ago, and I'd always wanted to talk to him. And uh, so after that conversation, we got this in place, and I went round to his apartment, and we had this conversation. Uh, finally, I feel like it was a long time coming, and it was a fantastic chat. Uh, where to start with this guy and what to cover. I think we did a good job getting through as much as we did. Um, John has his own podcast that he did as a series during lockdown. Uh, I'll put a link to that so you can check that out. And uh, yeah, many, many books. Uh, I haven't read all of his books, but I've read quite a few of them and I enjoy his writing um, and I enjoy talking to him. He's a lively mind and a, a, a you know a fantastic wealth of experience and some amazing stories here um so enjoy this this is me talking with john wareham i said my life is a series of open books yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> well anyway no I some that you've written some that are still in the planning stages. i've got i've got I've, <laughs> actually i'm just about to write a, i was thinking i should write a book the title would be my criminal life mm. Uh, which began in this t town, actually. <laughs> anyway, so, um, and then I finish up teaching criminals, so it's yeah, like... Yeah, yeah, what uh, an arc. Well, yeah, no, I, I've got a good little book there. I've got yeah. a good little book, and I, I woke up the other morning and thought, I should put that thing down. And then I've got, I can uh, take it into um, everything I did in the prisons. I met, I met so many wonderful people there, so many do you Do you write... Do you write or think about writing every day? Do you write something uh, most days? It's funny you, you say that. That's what Anthony Trollope used to do, right? Mm, mm. He used to wake up no day without lines, mm. he, he said. I try to do that. Um, here's my thing. If I'm working on a project, I've got a lot of energy and I can work so many hours. I don't care what it is. I'll just do it. You know, I just will keep going and you get into a crucible and I, I'll stay there. And it can be it can be a week, it can be a month, it could be six months, it could be a year even, mm. you know. But you're doing that thing and it sort of takes over. And adrenaline is being created it's not through the project that. or it's something like, you, like that. You like know? you've gone to this 
this unusual mm. unusual place. Yeah, well, that's it. It's a different energy, isn't it? Well, that's that's again true with truer with fiction mm, mm. because when you're writing fiction, yeah, you're step you're creating a world, so you've got to step into it. Yeah, well, someone said to me, John, that all these things happen that in this book here, mm. uh, that all those things actually happen. Mm. I said. Everything that's in that book of uh, fiction of mine, it happened. Mm. Everything happened. The best bits only <laughs> happened inside my head. <laughs> but they're totally real to yeah, me. Yeah. And to me, they totally happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you, the, it's the stuff that's fiction, and you don't know where that comes from, but you're going into this other incredible place. Mm. So, so with that book, I thought it would end, I, I had in mind that it would end in a particular place. And I get to the ending of it, didn't end there at all. Kept on going <laughs> for six weeks. It was like, it was, wow, this is, and I, I would wake up in the morning and say, this is incredibly interesting. Mm. Where's, this, where's this going to? Mm. But you sort of knew it was going somewhere, mm. but you didn't know where. And then it ended, you know, just like that. So it was sort of funny. Yeah, so that has been my mm. experience. But I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know how to, how to really start this with you because your life and, I guess, careers, plural, um, have taken so many different paths. And I wondered, I guess one thing I ask people and... Um, it's a bit naff, but um, it helps me get a sense of, of who someone is when they've done so many different things. Is when you're going through the airport, which is, is internationally, which is not happening as much now, of course. But what do you write down on the on the card? You know, as your occupation. <laughs> well, what do you put? Well, it depends. <laughs> Does it change? Uh, yes, it it will it will alter. Mm. Um, in the past, I used to write down chartered accountant because. Mm. That would always get you through. No one would look at your bags or anything. <laughs> so, and of course, I was a chartered accountant, which I gave up at age 24, I think. Mm. Anyway, but uh, so I, I would put that down in order to get through the airport mm. without any fuss at all. Now, at my age, I can write uh, writer and lecturer, mm. you know, which, mm. which again sounds sort of vague enough I'm, and I'm well it's I'm also looking, the truth as well <laughs> well yeah no it, it's true yeah well having to describe yourself as a writer I have never I mean there are some people that say I'm a writer as if it's like being a priest or something mm. and, and I've never thought about I've no, never, I, I never thought of myself in that way I think I'm just going to sit down and write something mm -mm. I don't know like well I, see I write writer but that's because that's the thing I've done the most Yes. You know, even when I was working in, well, I think I think if I flew overseas when I was working in a shop as a retailer, I probably wrote retailer. Um, but I, I just write writer because yes. I do get up and write something every day. So therefore, it's the thing I've done the most. So for me, that's who I am. Yeah. But, I, but in saying that, I don't hold on to it in any, you know, if I turned around and got a day job tomorrow working doing whatever, that would be the thing I would write down because that would be what would occupy my time. Yeah. I, I, can never quite, I can never quite work out what would be an accurate description <laughs> of me. Mm, mm. <laughs> because it's like, okay, so it also, I do all, all sorts of things. And, mm. and, um, but I have published 
I've published 13 books now. Yeah, yeah. And so you definitely get to write down writer. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, well, and I've written po- poetry and I've yeah. written a play and I've written... Novels. Non- non-fiction. And memoir. Yes. <clears throat> yeah. Right, right, yeah. right. I've written all that stuff. <laughs> but, but again, <clears throat> I just think of it as a job, you know, sit yeah. down and do it. I, I, yeah. It's like there's no point being mm. precious or... or or thinking that you're somehow special. You've got yeah. to sit down and do it. Yeah, yeah. Now, <clears throat> you, I mean, we, we've sort of really only just met. We've had one other brief meeting before this. And when, and when I met you, you said something about words to the effect of uh, that you thought you had published a little too widely. <laughs> you know, in terms of... I, I bring that up because you just ran through the different things you've done. And you sort of said, yeah, may, maybe I've actually... Across too many disciplines. I can't remember exactly how you phrased it. Uh, yeah. Well, no, I, I have thought thinking that. Thinking behind that. Uh, okay. Well, the first book I ever wrote, I sat in this town, Wellington, with a friend from from New York who worked in mm. worked in advertising, and he said to me, "John, you should write a book," and I said. I'm not going to write a book. It's too hard to write a book. It's too hard. You've got to sit down and write. To you. I said, you know, do you know how hard it is to write anything? Oh, John, he said, you should write a book. He said to me, I was 28 at the time. He said, because one day you'll go to New York and your book will be your calling card. And I looked, I looked and I said, you know, that's a good idea, isn't it? <laughs> And so I didn't think about it. I did it. But when I got to Australia two years later, I had some spare time, a few weeks, and I sat down and wrote 1,600 words a day for three weeks. And I sent them off to two publishers, and they both accepted it. Much to, much to my amazement, mm, mm. and so okay. Well, that was interesting, and it was a it was a spoof on business. But anyway, um, so that book then that book was out, and and it, and and the publisher A H and A W mm, Reed mm. Uh, put me up for a book of the year in the Australian Book Awards. So all of a sudden now. People were giving my book to people for, for cr- cr- Christmas, and mm. then I was meeting other people. I thought, well, this is interesting, isn't it? <laughs> I'm not going to write an article again when I can write a book. A book. <laughs> and so I've always thought it's, you know, if, if I'm going to write anything, it's something that I can put in a book mm. at, at some point. Now, now I, anyway, that book was, was out. And then, and then when I went to the States... Um, I didn't want to use that book as a calling card. I wrote that book in three weeks. And, uh, you know, I wrote it in a big rush and and everything. Anyway, I got to the States, and they didn't correct it much at all. They just put commas in there or something like that. And and then when I got to the States, I thought, no, I, I could do a really good version of that book. And so Alfred... Knopf Jr., who mm. was the chief executive of uh, Athenaeum Scribner's, he, I actually phoned him and said to him, I could write a book for you. 
Well, I, I had read this book in I had read this book in New York called How to Get ha Happily P mm. Published. Mm. How to Get Happily Published, and it was an interesting book. But there were anyway, there was a line in that book that just jumped up at the that jumped up off the page at me, and it said. If you really want to get a book published, go and find a book that has been a bestseller mm. that would be similar to your book and find and look at that book and find out who was the publisher and who was the editor and then get on the phone to their publisher <laughs> and say, I could write a book like that. They said the guy will stop and listen to you because this was the best-selling book for him and so he knows, mm. he or she knows, mm. that this is a good thing. So anyway, I went and got David Ogilvy's book, Con Confessions of an Advertising Man, mm. Mm. and I looked at it, which, which I had read, and, and I looked it up, published by Athenaeum. So, so anyway, I called Athenaeum and I said... Um, I said, who was the editor of that book? And they said, oh, that would be Pat Knopf. I said, is, is he any relation to Alfred Knopf? Oh, yes, yes, they said, he is, he is the son of mm. Alfred Knopf. And so I formed an impression in my head of a guy about in his 40s who, who was an editor. And I said, so would you tell him that I'm on the phone and I will speak to him? <laughs> I will speak. I'm offering to speak to him, and they said, "Well, what would it be about?" I said, "Well, uh, it would be about the book, um, Confessions of an of an Advertising Man." Anyway, uh, unbeknown to me, he wasn't an editor. He was the chairman of the place. He was <laughs> 64 years yeah, old, yeah. <laughs> and he came on the phone. Anyway, said Alfred Knopf. I said, uh, Mr. Knopf, I just want to make sure I've got the right man. You are the editor of... Uh, oh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I edited that. I said, um, well, I could write a book for you that would be similar to that, but it would be a big improvement on that book because, because he only wrote about advertising, whereas I would be writing about people. Mm. And he said, well, Mr. Wareham, he called me Mr. Mr. Wareham. Well, Mr. Wareham, he said... If you could do that, I would be most interested. Um, send me an outline in two chapters. And I said, I will do that. I'll have them for you by the end of the week, <laughs> which, which I absolutely did. And then he came back, and, and he was very enthusiastic. And then the next time I went into their building, the next time I went into the Scribner's building on Fifth Avenue, there, to my amazement, is a giant po poster of me up there <laughs> and my book was their book of the of the of the of the of the spring season mm. and uh, anyway they, anyway so that was <laughs> that was that um but so you yeah, know that book, book came out and was on on all sorts of lists and everything and um <clears throat> and there's even more to that story which i won't get into but um the problem then was <clears throat> The problem then was that they wanted me to do a business book again <clears throat> and a business book again. <clears throat> and so 
I had always thought that I should be writing a novel, actually. Mm. And so instead of that, I wrote, uh, I wrote one, two, three, I think four bi business books. And when you do that, people think that you can't write fiction. Mm. You know, <laughs> they, think, they think that you won't be able to do that. Whereas that would be the skill that I was prob probably the best at, actually. Um, so um, anyway, that, that was so that was it. That pulled me into that, and then I I came back from England, and I thought, John, I just have to write this novel I have in my head, <clears throat> and um, and so I sat down, and I just and for six months I just wrote that. I, I didn't do anything else. Mm. I just, I got lost in it. And then I sent that off to, um, to a guy that had worked for um, Knopf, who was most anxious to re re receive the book. And I, I sent it to him and he sent, he sent me a fax and saying, John, I, I have got this precious manuscript of yours and I'll be looking at it this way this weekend, you know, just to let you know. Anyway, after the weekend, he came back with a, again, a fax, he sent me a fax, and said, well, John, um, I've much admired, you know, your, your ability to write this stuff, but this must be one of the worst novels I ever read in my life. It's really quite hopeless. <laughs> and, and anyway, he said, well, there were two things about it that he liked. He liked this character and that character. But other than that, John, it's 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 un, unpublishable. Anyway, I thought I thought you know I listened to what, what he said. I, I read what he said, and I thought you're a hundred percent right. You're a hundred percent right. This isn't any good. And so instead of being a first person thing, I put it in the second person. I did a whole lot of work on mm. it, and then I sent it off to another publisher, and they came back and said, no, we don't like it either. Well, okay, fine. Well, I kept on. <laughs> I got turned down for that book maybe four or five times, but it was always good thing because mm. every time it came back, I said, okay, John, I'm going to do some more work, and I worked, I worked, I worked on it until finally I got this really nice book out of it. So I was, I was actually thrilled. <clears throat> now, I could tell someone how to write a novel. I, I wish... I'd been able to give myself the advice that I would give to someone else mm, now, mm, mm. because it's easier well, than I thought. Well, you can do it, because you've yes. learned it. I learned how to do it. I learned how to do it. And yeah. uh, so then writing the poetry, which I put some poetry into that book, and a friend of mine said, oh, he said, I like the sonnet that this, this girl in the book writes. And I said... Oh, you liked that, did you? Oh, yeah, he said. He said it was the best thing in the book. I said, well, it wasn't the best thing, but it was. <laughs> <laughs> but it was certainly uh, that's interesting. And so I thought, okay, so she wrote some poems. I'll go back and change all her poems mm. into sonnets. I'm not sure I could do that, but I'll give it a shot. So I went back and I did that, and it worked well. When you write. A sonnet, the sonnet writes you, mm. and it's the form it forces you to either turn up something good or something hopeless, and so anyway, that was in there, and and 
And they attract a lot of attention. And then my publisher said, well, John, you could write this other book afterwards. You could put together a book of sonnets. And I said, yeah, I, I could do that, yes. So we put together the book called, called Sonnets for Sinners, mm. which uh, the publisher kindly nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. But you see, now I've got, I've got non-fiction, business books, and I've got a novel, and I've got some poetry. And then I thought, okay, that book came out, and I thought, that would make a great play. So we, so we mm. t- made it into a play, which was fun. And, uh, and then I wrote this bo- book about George Bush. I read this uh, other thing that uh, was um, called How to Write the, the, bl- the Blockbuster Novel. And uh, okay, I don't know how to write a blockbuster novel. Uh, how do you write a blockbuster? So I get the book and I read it. He says, well, no one cares what you do in your private life. Mm. You've got to write about big people, really big people, like Shakespeare was writing about kings and queens and this and that and the other. So I thought, you know what, There's, I can write this book about George W. Bush. And I did. I sat down and wrote that. The President's the Therapist and the Secret Intervention to Treat the Alcoholism of George W. Bush, which went on to the Amazon politics fiction best best seller list and it stayed there for three months. Um, I think it went to number three there. so, so that was good. Uh, other than the fact that I got some death threats, <laughs> Bet, so. I was just going to say <laughs> there must have been a downside to writing that sort of book and it becoming popular. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was. I got some mm. death threats off it, but still, it was a good book. And and again, I had an idea of where it would go, but where it finished up totally surprised <laughs> me. Mm. And the mm. ending is excellent. The mm. the ending of that book is is excellent so um when you're getting a death threat for writing a book like that are you kind of thinking well (laughs) i'd like to at least check the receipts like you know this this person better have bought the book at least you know Uh, not just be going on on hearsay (laughs) actually the woman who the woman who threatened me with death she she actually said i should be burned at the stake um she was the chief of the republican party (laughs) in Mm. in new york or Mm. well well Wherever it was, yeah, yeah. But um, anyway, that book did that book did ext- ext- extremely well. So, so I'm into politics, fiction, business books, poetry, a play, two novels, and so I wished, if I'm looking back on it, I mean, I don't care actually, but maybe I should have written things. Uh, I should have, maybe I should have sat down and write a novel first. But here's the thing. The experience that I had in the business world and all the experience I had. And of course now I'm writing these books about my prison work. Mm. So um, you need a thing, you need a thing to say. You know, you've got to have something Mm -hmm. that is unique that the reader would like to read. Mm -hmm. Right? And so, unless he wants to read, unless the reader wants to read it, then what's going on? Um, So... Well, my thing I always think about is, 
you're either a you're either a really good writer, or you've got a really really good story, and and sometimes and hopefully it's both. Yes. And that's perfect for the reader, but the reader will ex- will ultimately accept either. You know, if you are a really really good writer, a loyal reader will put in the work, even if it's not your best work, because they know what you're capable of. And an average writer, can, if they have an absolutely fantastic story, an average writer can kind of get away with that. I to a that, to a point, obviously. Well, I can't I, keep um, hitting, you know, repeat. Well, we well, get found out. <laughs> I, I absolutely think that's. I think that's true, but if you, you can have a good story, but you have to be able to, you have to be able to. to oh, totally to tell it yes. <laughs> properly and well and yes, yeah, yeah, and structure it and. But as I say, like you get, and so I guess that's why you get people having. Uh, I mean, I haven't I haven't read this, so this is going to be a little bit of a terrible example. But why was why was the Da Vinci Code so popular? I imagine it's because it was a great story at the time and the timing of it. Because a lot of people will talk about Dan Brown not being a, a particularly great writer, but they love the story. So it was the story that worked there, wasn't it? Yes, and I'm and I'm saying it like that because I don't, I don't want to come down like a bag of hammers on him because I haven't read it. So uh, maybe maybe he's a better writer than some people say. I haven't read that book either. He's certainly but, succe- been successful. But, but the, I think the key to that book is that the reader learns something as well. Oh, totally. It's <clears> one of those. It's it, it's a, a situation where the person feels like they come out of it a little bit smarter and a yes. sub, and a subject that they know means something and that they might not have previously had much to, yes. to go on. So, yeah. You know, I think that's a big plus. Well, with my George Bush book, um, I could see that, that he had an alcohol problem. It was, it was obvious when you were there. And I was working with the prison inmates and I was coaching CEO. CEO. So Mm-mm. I was doing these two, two things. And, and I, I, th- I was thinking to myself, George Bush needs some help. And he's never going to ask me, but I'm going to give it to him anyway. <laughs> I'm going to write this book, and I'll be, and I'll become Doctor Alter, and mm. and, and Doctor Alter will alter him. So yeah. anyway, uh, that thing where the guy gets called into the White House, White House, and they tell George Bush that Doctor Alter has been called there to give him some leadership insi- mm. insight, but actually he's been there. He's in there to treat George Bush for alcoholism. Mm-hmm. He knows that, but George Bush doesn't, but everyone else does. And things go, <laughs> go very well, mm-hmm. go very well, until they begin to go off the rails. <laughs> <laughs> and so between the alcoholism and, and the Iraq war, which was on then, and the religious issues in the middle of all that, this, you know, it's, a, it's an enter- entertaining sort of a funny mm-hmm. droll. But he, he's there. He, he, here's the thing that made that book good was that, was that Dr. Alter was there to help George Bush. He's not there to criticize him or to bring him down. Mm-hmm. He's there to give him some advice and to help him and to do the best that he mm-hmm. can. Mm-hmm. So, it, so it isn't a... Isn't a book? It's it's a book that's very down the middle, mm. but it's because it was sort of straightforward and down the middle that it's 
as funny as hell. Mm, mm. <laughs> so anyway, actually as funny as hell itself, I guess. But anyway, <laughs> there, there we go. So that, <laughs> that was so. So those are all those things. I wish. I, okay. So, but you know, I I always try to do something else. Yeah. 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 Something new. You can. You can. You can. You can make. I mean, you're making sense <clears throat> of them now. You can make <clears throat> sense of them. So therefore. Uh, they deserve to exist. I mean, there've been many of them have been very successful books, which would um, be the argument for why they deserve to exist anyway. But you, you know, you can, you can, and you're telling the story about how they kind of lined themselves up, how one led to another in a way. They they weren't. Yeah, just, no, it's true. They aren't just wild deviations for the sake of it. They aren't just ticking the box of I better go off and do that next because I haven't done that before. There is a logic. no, no, no. It's true. I I, mm. I was always able to build upon the thing. Yeah, I, yeah. I it's graduated done. steps, isn't it? <clears throat> yes, yeah, yeah. No, that that was it. And, and and so now that I've reached this incredibly advanced age in my life, even though I still <laughs> feel like I'm twenty, <clears throat> even though so all of a sudden I've got I've got. I've got so many things that I could say that are that are you know not, not just say some interesting stories that mm. I can make sense of now in a way that I never saw before that are incredibly interesting to me anyway mm-hmm. and I, I could stick them on the page <clears throat> and so uh, anyway that's what I did with my that was your podcast. lockdown. That was your lockdown yeah, project. Yeah, yeah. I've listened to the podcast. I oh, was, you did yeah, listen yeah, to yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you do say in there at some point that you know there's an accompanying book. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was your little lockdown project. That was my lockdown project. Well, do you want to talk about that? Do you want to explain exactly what? Because people can't see the book you're holding up, and they can't act. I mean, they'll have a they'll have a link to it, but they can't straight jump to the podcast. The breakout plan. Mm. Um, which okay, so. Okay, t- tell you what happened. Juan, Juan Zhang, the filmmaker who made a film about me. Yeah, yeah. Afterwards, he said, oh, John, you should do a podcast. And I said, I don't want to do a podcast. <laughs> it sounds like a whole lot of work. And it's, it's a thing I don't know anything <laughs> about. And, and how, would you, how would you make anything out of that anyway? And he said, oh, John, it's an up-and-coming thing and the audience will find you. I thought, that's interesting. The audience will find you, he said. People are looking. And it was just like when I read that thing on the page, if you really want to get a book published. Mm. Wow, this is good advice. And so I bought a good microphone Mm. and I got the software and I set myself up in my little office here and I sat down to do that, and it was like going into a cauldron because I'd never done this before. But I knew how to write the things, so and I knew how to present my ideas. And then I'm thinking to myself, well, who is the audience? Who, well, I know approximately what, what I'll say because I've got this great pro, prison pro, program, and I could speak about my prison program and what we did. And I thought, no, 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 John. You've got to direct that to a guy who's in jail mm. right now. Mm. 
you've got a captive audience, an actual captive audience, okay? <laughs> and so... Yeah, um, I must say, I love the intro every every time. It gave oh, me a do? little... Yeah, yeah, it gave me a little chuckle. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. About, about being in prison or maybe you're about to be or maybe you've just got out. <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Right, well, uh, I wanted to establish that mm. up front and then I want to lead you through whoever you are. Mm. I don't know who, who you are, but, but I had a picture. Oh, look, there's what I did. See that? Oh, yeah, yeah. See yep. that guy there? Yeah. So you know, he was in my class. Yeah. And so I put that there, so I n- never forgot who I was speaking to. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. So, um, so you want to speak to that individual. Um, and so I, I already had a program, and I already had these great friends that, that I met in jail mm. who... Everyone in my class at one stage was there for murder. So, and they're all out now. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, and, and the good friends, they've been to a house and everything. Have you stayed over? Um, anyway, um, so they're on the podcast as well, as you mm. know. Mm. And um, I thought, okay, so I've got a thing, to, I have a thing to say. I've got mm. a specific formula that we're going to give you that I have seen all the people's lives. I've mm. actually seen this, you know, with my own eyes. I sit there. So, okay. So I got to the end of that. I think we did uh, six broadcasts. Uh, anyway, the, the, anyway, the four worlds model. The, it, it begins with the, with the idea. Every, all prisons are mental prisons. And every such prison has four walls and a door and a lock and a key. And only you can let yourself out. How there's a door. Mm. I call it the door of understanding. So I describe the, the four walls and the door. And then what you see when you get out of prison on the day that you get out what you're exactly looking at now and so anyway i thought i've got to make this as clear as i can so ideally nobody can forget it (laughs) okay because i'd like to get this idea across to the guy in jail well we i got to the end of that and suddenly got to the end of it and the george floyd thing Mm. cropped up and i Mm. thought the george floyd thing that would make a great opening to this book, to this um, to this podcast, because mm. again, people were go- going on about George Floyd. So I thought, okay, who actually killed George Floyd? Mm. You know, <laughs> that's that's a deeper question than people quite see. So I'm going to I'm going to address this question. Who killed George Floyd? Was it the policeman? Was it was it society at large? Mm-hmm. Was it was it his own actions? Was it this, that, and the other? And the answer that I give is a pretty sophisticated answer, mm-hmm. and everyone loved that. Thing, yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's like okay. So then, we, and then we go on, and and then finally, I put this this other thing. Okay, so you listen to all this, <clears throat> and then at the end, there's the question. Um, what if you stumble, which I hadn't put, I almost could have put that first as well. Mm. What if you follow all the advice that I've given you here 
and you get out of prison and you still go off the rails again. Let's talk about that. And probably the best advice, <clears throat> well, I had given a speech in Rikers Island to the graduating class of my inmates there and I said to them that, um, that some of you are going to come back to prison, some of you won't. And what I know is that I don't know, I can't tell which is which, mm. but you know in your heart, you know mm. whether you're coming back to prison or not anyway. So the next time they put the handcuffs on you, I'm going to give you per permission to say, John said this would happen to me, all right? So, so, so anyway, that, that, that was my little, little speech. <clears throat> anyway, I said to Hassan, who you can hear on the program, mm. who served mm. a whole lot of time, a lot of time, like 40 years. Anyway, I said to him, okay, so th this is what I'm thinking, this is what, this is what I'm, I'm thinking that we'll say. And he said, oh, no, no, John, that's not it at all. Mm. I said, Isn't that, what do you mean, I was, I was wrong? <clears throat> anyway, he said, oh, no, John, this, he said, they don't know whether they'll, whether they'll be back. They think they won't be back. That's not the problem. The problem is the road back to prison begins six months before you ever get out of it. The road back to prison begins when the guy's in prison and he's thinking about how he can improve his criminal skills mm -hmm. and get off with the crime the next time through. He's stuck in a prison right there. That's the thought that will bring him back. But, but he believes he will not come back, but he will come back. He said, I can't tell you the number of people I've seen that ever came back because he <laughs> served all those years in jail. And uh, I thought, that's so good. So anyway, he gives, he looked like Morgan Freeman and he speaks like Morgan Freeman and he's on that broadcast. Mm, mm. He's absolutely fabulous guy. Yeah, yeah. Probably the best friend that I ever had, to be honest. Mm. He's, he's, he, and just a great guy. But you can, you can hear him on almost every broadcast. Mm. And, and of course, I've got these guys do, doing their poems and, and, and everything as well. And then my other great friend is there, um, um, who's on the wall there, um, Brian O'Day, right oh, there. Yeah. Yep. Brian O'Day, the big-time drug dealer, mm. pulled off a $200 million deal under the noses of the police. <laughs> <laughs> and then he got caught, ultimately, and, and he came with me to teach in the prison. So he's there as well. And the advice that he gives as a big-time criminal a successful mm. <laughs> is also outstanding advice, I think, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's, um, that's, that's what I was working on. It's cool because, like, I listened to it and enjoyed it for many reasons, and one of them was, and I think you sort of hinted at this just then in describing it, was that whilst it's discussing prison and the prison experience, it's a metaphor for... Um, our own mental health and and within that the whole concept of addiction and how you know addiction is can be a mental prison and that stuff around escaping and wondering whether you're going to go back to it or not is is a part of addiction isn't it of people being actually being aware that in some way 
not just being powerless to the addiction, but also in some way this gives me some momentary comfort, which is the same with some yes. forms of, of reoffending, isn't it? This well, is what I know. This is what I have rewired myself to yeah. do. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> okay, the guys in my class were often there because of a supposed addiction. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, you know, they're in the middle of drugs and everything, and they mm-hmm. were doing drugs and selling drugs. But <clears throat> when they graduated, <clears throat> they never went to an addiction treatment, and they came to my class. Mm-hmm. And when they got out, they didn't get back on drugs again, or, or they were able to drink and not go back. Because now they had an understanding of the world that they didn't have before and the place that they fit into it. And the world made made sense to them in a way that it didn't make sense before. They could communicate in a way that they couldn't com- communicate bef- before. And they had skills. They had thinking skills they didn't have before. And so they didn't need to engage in serious self-soothing anymore. Mm, mm. So my take is, particularly here in New Zealand, where people say, you know, a person has to go into rehab. Okay, go into rehab. What are they going to teach you in rehab? I'd like to know that. Say... The person's going to spend three months in rehab or a month in rehab or a week in rehab. Okay, what exactly are you going to say to these people? What, what, is it, what is it that you're going to say that's going to change someone's life, right? Because, because I used to lecture on leadership all over the world and because people would actually pay handsomely to hear me mm. when I stood up on the stage... I've got to hold that audience and I've got to, I've got to have something to say mm. that they haven't heard before or I'm going to put something in a way that is going to change their lives, all right? Mm. So when I went in the prisons, okay, I want to do the same thing. But I actually spoke to this woman who was engaged in a business like this in, in, uh, in addiction and everything and, and she said... Uh, I said, so what are you going to say? What exactly are you going to say? What will be the sentence? What will be the words that you will use to change someone's life? She looked at me and she said, do you, have to, do you actually have to say, to say something? And I said, wow. She didn't know what to say. She thought it was something else. I said, you know what? If you go to a Christian class, they're going to give you a copy of the Bible to read and the words of Christ and the words of this and they're going to get you to read the the book of Proverbs and everything else. They're going to give you something to read and to say. If you go to a 12-step program, they're going to print their 12 steps up on the wall for you. So yes, you need something to say. What is it that you're going to say? That's going to change someone's life because that's what I've been working in. Mm. And that's, okay, so I've seen, so I tried to put all my best ideas Mm. into this podcast series. Yeah, yeah. And I've seen those ideas. I've seen people's lives altered with with Mm. them, especially if you listen to the whole thing. Like I I was uh, teaching my class for for 13 
weeks, right? So when I went in, people could be a little skeptical, although ultimately they weren't because they knew that I'd been there before and everything. Mm -hmm. And um, but over the thirteen weeks, yeah, we could break that. Oh, wow, okay. So it was uh, anyway. I was in a fortunate position. It was just, and probably because of my upbringing and my problems and my stutter and everything else that's wrong with me, mm-hmm. I had an. There was there was a, there was um, there was a teacher there who got fired, and and I said, why would you let that teacher go? And they said, oh well, John, he didn't. Unfortunately, with him, he was sort of a goody-goody, and he didn't really understand the inmates. He didn't have any larceny in his heart. Mm. And I said, that won't be a problem with me. <laughs> I can understand. All right. It's like, okay, I, I understand it. And I'm not going to judge anybody or anything like that. Mm. I, I'm going to, you know, of course, I don't on the program, right? Mm-hmm. It's like... Mm. It's like, okay. Well, that's what that's what I what I loved about it, and you know where I'm sort of saying I could see it as this kind of wider application or metaphor for other <clears throat> problems outside of an actual physical incarceration, is that um, there's the the way you the way you actually talk as well as the things you say has a kind of um, I want to say a kind of spiritually and philosophically holistic approach. You know, there's, mm, sure. there's, and you instantly feel and note the empathy around it, rather than the position of, let me tell you because I know. Yeah, no, you know, it, it's not that kind of not lecture that. at all. No, and not at all. No. I, I, I certainly, and I wouldn't actually dare to do that. No, right? Because you lose more people oh, straight it's not away. Any bad. It's, it's, it's like okay, I'm, I'm going to share some ideas with you, yeah, yeah. and and. And and I'd like to get your ideas back. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, it's like, no, it's it's not. I'm not going to lecture at you, mm. right? Mm, mm. I mean, that we we only pay attention to the things that we discover for our for ourselves. And so, when I was teaching, it's like, okay, let's see if we can't all get on a journey to discovering some stuff so when I first went there when I first went in the prison Rikers Island and there were 35 guys in a class and I'd never been in that situation before I looked at the 35 guys and I said wow something's wrong here because there's only three white guys in the class of whom I happen to be one (laughs) and and so that's wrong to begin with. I, I can't believe what I'm seeing. And then we went around the room and I was asking, why are you here? And I get these answers. And a guy points to his arm. He points to his mm. arm and says, uh, I said, well, I said, what is it about your arm? He said, the color of my skin. And I said, listen, I'm just new here. I don't know a lot of stuff, but the color of your arm, to me, I couldn't tell the difference between that and the color of an Asian's arm. Yet I don't see any Asians in this room here today. Why is that? (laughs) Anyway, you would think I'd get beaten up by all the guys in the room for that. 
But they looked at each other and they went very quiet and they said, they said, he's absolutely right. There are no Asians here. Why is that? Right? Well, okay, asking the question now, why are the Asians not there and the African-Americans and the, and the Hispanics are? Well, the quick answer is the Asians have got families. The Asians have got an education. The Asians, are, you know, etc., which you don't have. You're coming from a broken home, etc., etc. So, so that was the first reason. And then, and then the other reason was that God brought me here. God brought me here. I thought, you know what? I've got to get race and religion out of the equation because we'll never get anywhere. You as, never solve those, yeah. You, you never solve those. And, and so how do you get race and religion out of the question? How do you think you do that? How do you get race out of the question? How, how when you're talking to a group of people and you're the only white guy there effectively, how, do you, how are you going to get race out of this thing? I'll tell you how I did it, all right? You understood? Mm. I'll tell you. Okay. We're going to discuss it. We're going we're to deal with it front and center, front and center. And so um, we had the discussions. I, I came back with a set of readings for these guys um, showing how the English would treat the people that got sent to Australia, largely Irish how the Africans treat the Africans, how the Germans treat, treat the Germans, etc. So you show that racism is what human beings are all about, that we're all racist, for God's sake, you know? And so, but, but you know, I'm not going to say that to anybody. Mm. I'm going to go through the readings and we'll see where this gets to. Anyway, there was a guy in the class who said to me, oh, John, the problem is, the problem, the problem is, John is, the problem is, it's white people just like you. You have oppressed us. You, we're, the big, that's the slavery of the day because you, you've oppressed us. I said, hang on a minute. I'm from New Zealand. <laughs> and so everybody laughed in the room. <laughs> and, but that was a big... That was a big plus because mm. they, they could see that I, I was from New Zealand and that I didn't, I didn't that care. You, what, were, you were coming in and trying to understand their yes. wider problem yes. as much as you were part of it in any way, more, yeah. more so than you were and part of it in any way. Yeah. They taught me so much. Mm. They, they taught me, you know, so I was seriously interested, like seriously interested in how did you get to the, these thinking, you know, what are your thoughts and... Mm. How do we get there? And and um, and they could sense that. So I guess the question I want to ask you and is, <clears throat> what took you there? What took you to the prison to do that work? Why did you go? What compelled you? Because um, I think we'll be able to work out why you stayed. But why did you go? Um, well, probably, probably, I would. Like I was asked, <sighs> okay, there were, I can give you one of two answers here. I'll give you this answer, yeah. all right? I'll give yeah. you this answer, and, yeah. we, and we can see whether we include it or not. <laughs> uh, we can see whether we include it. Our oldest son, Anthony, our oldest son, mm -hmm. had a serious drug problem all his life. And although he... He's, he's the only person with a degree 
in psychology from Columbia University to wind up in Rikers Island mm -hmm. and some other fine prisons as well. He kept on going back. He wound up in the snow. So he was there and um, I got a call from the programs officer said uh, that he'll be graduating in this in this class. Would And they're asking the parents to come out there. Would we come out there for that class? I said, yeah, okay, I'll go out there. You know, we'll go out there, sure, to see our son graduate in, in in greens with um <laughs> with the other he was, he was the only white guy in the class and so okay so then afterwards that same woman asked me would she she had heard i've written some yeah. books and everything yeah, yeah would i would i would i uh teach a class and i said yeah i could do that anyway the next week, she said, "They liked you so much. Would you come back and do? And would you do it again? Maybe you could cre create a class." <clears throat> I said, "I'd do it on one condition, which is that I can create my own class." And I and she said, "Well, yes, you could you could do that because we're not going to pay, pay you anything anyway, mm. and we're pleased to have you there." And so um, I said, "Well, okay, as as long as I'm allowed to teach whatever I like." Because for me, I'm going to learn so much out here. Mm. That's that's what I was looking at it, and so um, and so I had some ideas. I, I already knew I've been working with co coaching people and everything. Mm. So CEOs, some famous CEOs, and um, so I knew approximately what I would do. But then when I got out there. It was even more interesting because the guys listened closely to what I said because they said, "Oh, John must." No, and okay. Well, I, whatever I know, I don't know much. I'm going to learn more from more from you guys. Mm. But uh, I paid serious attention, and then eighty percent of those guys, eighty percent of the inmates, returned to jail, returned to Rikers Island within three months of being re released. Wow, eighty yeah. percent, four people out of five returned, and I thought, wow, I don't need an audience. Like, unless I can reduce the recidivism and unless I can make a difference, I'm not going to do this. Okay, so let me see if I can't create a class that would reduce recidivism. And I stayed on for 20 years. I stayed at Rikers Island for approximately 10 years. And then I went upstate to teach a higher class of criminal. Um, everyone was in my class of murder of a violent crime up there. <clears throat> Ultimately, we reduced the recidivism rate to, um, to the single f digits. And for some years, it was actually nil people who graduated in my class di didn't go back. Mm. Um, now, it could be argued that my class was a self-selecting class. You know, they wouldn't be there if they didn't want to learn. Mm. Well, there's some people left, but um, it was a pretty amazing experience, actually. It was um, so. At the end of the day, we, with their help, with the guys' help, I formulated a very neat formula, very neat program. And I was teaching public speaking, and I was teaching po poetry, and 
and they were giving the, giving them these these things to read, which were not easy to read, and leading a discussion without giving any mm. answers, mm. you know. Uh, so they were stretched. They were seriously stretched so that w when they got to the end of the class, it, it, see, here's the thing. Some people looked at what, what I was doing. They said, oh, he's, he's teaching public speaking and debating. That's what you've got to do to change people. No, no, no. The public speaking and the debating was only on the structure of the ideas that we were putting forward, mm. that they drove it home. So the public speaking drove it home, the poetry drove it home, the discussion readings drove it home, and the ideas were imprinted there so that the guys, when they graduated my class, they had critical thinking skills mm. that they never had before and they were different people to work. So, so the group, being a part of that group and being, being stretched for 13 weeks, my friend Hassan said to me, John, when you came in on a Monday and you taught that class and you gave us those things to read, we didn't sleep that night. We were lying in our dorm discussing these ideas that you had brought in there. Mm. We couldn't believe it because because your your ideas were your ideas were deliberately confusing because you wanted us I called it constructive confusion, you know? <laughs> constructive confusion. Mm. So that the conversation doesn't end when the lesson ends. No, no, yeah, no, yeah, no. Yeah. No not at not at all. That's not the at beginning. All. <laughs> and then you would come back and give a speech on that subject next week. Yeah. And then you'd write a po poem about it next mm. next week as well. And so all of these things, all of these um, delivery mechanisms that you're putting to them, the public speaking, the writing, are um and the, and the sense of community, the gang, that forms are all self-esteem builders. Absolutely. For, for people that didn't have any sort of support network. Yeah, well... Or, or, or whatever they had, it, it had broken, maybe in some cases through their own destruction, but... Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. They, well, yeah, I can still remember there was a guy in my, in my class, and I guess it was the third class that, um, anyway... Uh, uh, up, upstate there and he said John he said I am amazed at what's happened here he said you don't know this you think we're all friends when we come to your class but we've never met each other mm. at all mm. and we're in prison and one of the things you learn in prison is don't confide anything to anybody because they'll use, use it use, against yeah. you but he said you've got everybody talking <laughs> Bearing their secrets and their souls there, he said, how are you doing that? I said, I don't know. I'm, I guess I'm just interested. <laughs> anyway, but, but it's true. Everybody got caught up in this. Everybody got... So the group, the group was a part of... was an integral part of the whole thing. So you, you can re read a book and you get something or you can have a discussion or you can go to a lecture. But no, no, no. We, we had so much more going mm. on there. And so that's... Um, that was that was it. and then and, and I I would say to these guys you know and they say oh John you're a motivational speaker I said never call me a motivational speaker <laughs> I never want to be called a motivational speaker I hate that expression if I'm motivating you then when I leave the motivation goes home when I go home I do not want to motivate you all right I want to share some ideas with you that will liberate you. 
<laughs> and so when I leave, hold on a minute, you can forget all about John Wareham, you'll still have those ideas and you'll have them for the rest of your life. The mm. ideas I'm sharing with you, liberating ideas. Now, it, it was true that at, at the end of it, they got the feeling, okay, I can do this now. But they weren't getting it from me, they were getting it from the ideas that I was sharing, right? Mm -mm. Anyway, you can see that. One of the things that you clearly did for them um, was show them that your vulnerabilities are actually your strengths and a part of, or a part of your strength. I, I, a big plus for me was the fact that I had to stutter. And so I would deal with that right up front in the class. Mm -hmm. And my way of dealing with that was to say, to, look at the class and say, listen, I'm so pleased to see you guys here today because I might be dead already. And if it happened, it happened when I attempted suicide, you know, back all these years ago because of my stutter. And it may be that I succeeded. And this is the afterlife. Well, mm -hmm. Everybody would laugh at that. <laughs> this is the afterlife where I don't know whether we're up in heaven or down in hell, but it looks, doesn't look like a happy place around here. Anyway, everybody would laugh at that. And then I would go on to say, okay, so I won all these public speaking things afterwards, and that's, what I'm gonna, that's one of the things that you're going to get from my class. And so that was, a, that was a huge plus because, mm. you know, people would see I wasn't there to lecture at them. I was there to share something. I was, I was a vulnerable individual and probably I might have been all the time simply trying to cure myself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, anyway, something like that. Well, isn't that a thing that can be directed at anyone who's trying to help or coach? And it's not always true, but there's a moment where it's true, isn't it? That you're trying to, you know, we see in anyone else, we're all we're all good at spotting other people's flaws. But don't you think we do that as a way of distracting from recognizing our own? No, it's true. Well, no, we we are we can spot someone else's flaw because it's actually our flaw. <laughs> you're right. Yeah, no, I understand that. Yeah, no, it's it, that's that's called projection, right? Mm. Yeah, but anyway, that was a plus, and um, and that made it easy for me to overcome uh, all sorts of prejudices instantly. And mm. so then we could get get on with the class. But um, but for me, it was um, it was um, I, I just learned so much. Now you have stories of working with and befriending, as you say, murderers. Um, some of life's villains as they are cast um, and you have got to them and connected to them and you have learned from them and you've found um, some of the sweetest souls and most thoughtful people at the other end of the spectrum and at the other end and as society sees it and at the other end of your working life you were um, training and coaching and identifying and establishing and um, recruiting CEOs. Yes, and, absolutely. Uh, did you meet and see some of the worst traits of human beings in them? Since they are allegedly on one level 
you know, socially superior or uh, certainly financially superior, and so that means socially superior in a lot of people's minds. Yeah, no, it's... Well, again, the other plus that I had was... Was it four days a week I was coaching CEOs? Some of whom were very famous. Mm. Um, and then on the, on the fifth day I was teaching this, this class in the prisons. So I had these two audiences for whom I was performing exactly the same service. Mm, mm. <laughs> so, uh, because even when you're talking to the CEOs, the, the issues they face are the things that they have to deal with in their own lives. Uh, I can say that, I, uh, tell you, anyway, so that was a, that was a big plus um, because I knew... I could, I could say to the guys in jail, you know, I, when I say that you're a good guy which, and you gave a good speech, I'm not, I'm not just some priest that wandered in here. I'm coaching famous people. I'm comparing you to the best in the world, right? The mm. most successful in the, in the world. Now, in the business world, well, I was sort of fortunate. I never worked with anybody that I didn't like. Um, when you were recruiting over there, I did get to meet, <laughs> I got to meet a lot of sociopaths and I saw that quickly in New Zealand and then Australia and uh, there was a guy that, that uh, <laughs> I don't even get me on about it. It's like, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of a... I'm thinking of where one sociopath, he, I think his name was Fox, aptly Mr. Fox, <laughs> and he filled in our forms in Auckland and then in Sydney and then I happened to see him again in New, in New, New York and I never liked him anyway. It's like, okay, I, I, I never thought I could work with him. And so I called back to... We always kept our files, always kept our files. I called back to you, send me the card. Send me the card for Wellington, for Auckland, send me the card for Sydney, send me the card. Okay, so he's, he's, he's got three different sets of names there. And, and we're first names. He kept on changing his first names. And he was just... He was, a, you know, he was a crook, but he wound up. He wound up a partner in a in a in a in an HR firm here, until they found him out, which they, you know they, they kept quiet about. So I can think of him. I can think of I can think of all sorts of others mm. that I saw. So I got very good at spotting, at spotting sociopaths. Um, and people who were phonies. I mean, that, that was what I was. That was what I was the best at. I, I was. I, I was good at, at screening people, and there's an art to that. And the art to that is to well, the art to that is to spot the hidden flaw. There's a hidden flaw. Then in most people, actually, mm. a flaw that they don't 
totally understand and certainly the people around them don't understand and when they're coming to be interviewed for a job they're deliberately trying to hide from you okay so how do you spot the hidden flaw okay this is this is this is not easy and so you look for you you look for the vital clue you look for the vital clue I'm working in England and there's a guy, I, I look at a whole team there, a whole t team, a very famous team of uh, people. And, um, and they said, we, we want you to especially look at, at, at this guy who's, who's our new star. He's been here a couple of years and he's a star. Okay, fine. And he's getting paid a million pounds a year or something like that over there. He comes in and... Uh, Afterwards, all over, they said to me, so um, what did you think of him? I spent like two and a half hours with him, I suppose. And I said, well, here's what I think. I think before the week is out, you should fire him. <laughs> said, oh, no, John, he's, yeah, how could you say that? What sort of a he's person are you? He's our star. And he's a million dollars and we're... And he came from the BBC, wherever he came from. Mm. It was, and uh, I said, okay, well, you don't agree with me right now, but before the end of the week, you will agree with me <laughs> and you will let, let him go. Anyway, so, they, so what was it that I saw about that guy that they didn't see, okay? Okay, so the first thing, he knows he's being appraised and he arrives a quarter of an, a quarter of an hour late. Okay, so I just automatically assume there's no particular reason why in London you would be a quarter of an hour late. You don't want to be here. Now, I didn't assume that was true. I just put it in the back of my head. And then I said to him in the course of interviewing, and I'm looking down at his degrees, at his universities that he's been to, what, what jumps out for me is first that he's been to some good universities, but he's not graduated from any of them. And I'm thinking, okay, that's, that's interesting. And the, he's been able to sell them on the idea that they never graduated because he's a genius. He doesn't need to graduate. No, no, he was able, yeah, yeah. Uh, he was able to do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, just like Bill Gates or, or somebody. So anyway, I'm, I'm looking at that. I thought... I, I just want to check on those dates. I'm looking at the dates. And I said to him, so um, how old are you? And he said, oh, I'm, I'm 41 or 42. <laughs> I said, you're 41 or 42. So now I immediately, being the person I am, be, having been in this business for so long, I think I'm, and instantly think to myself, there's a year missing from your life now. You're either in prison or you're in rehab and you don't want to say to me. And so I've got that, I've got that. So anyway, look at the degrees. Oh, you said, fine. Oh, that's great. You went to these great universities and, 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 and you're so smart. You know, it's, it's, that's so good that you... That, oh, yes, he said. And then he makes his mistake. He makes his next mistake. You know what his next mistake is? He said, oh, yes, I said, you've been to these, these, these great places. I'm, I'm so impressed. Well, yes, he said, I went to Harvard too. I said, you went to Harvard? 
that's wonderful. You went to Harvard. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking that, that um, the reason you haven't put that down there is that probably you didn't stay on to graduate. No, how did you know? No, no, I didn't stay on. I said, can, can you just give me the dates you were there from? So I get the dates off him that he's there from. And um, I said, so you were there, you were there, you must have been, which house were you staying in at Harvard? My son went to Harvard <laughs> and he would have been there at the same time. So I happened to know the houses and he, and he didn't know. He, anyway, I didn't, I didn't mention that to him, uh, but I then called a friend who was the registrar at Harvard. They've got no recollection of him at all. And they've got no re records. Okay, so I'm saying the guy's just a liar. That's just that. All right, now, now it began with the idea that he's mm. a quarter of an hour late for the interview, and then the fact that he hasn't completed it. So you, you're looking at this stuff and thinking this all... Anyway, so finally the, I said to the... I go back to New York and I get a call from... I get a call from the chairman and says, well, you know, we're, we're still not sure whether to fire him or not. I said, you're not sure? Wow. I said, well, you think we, you've got to get rid of him. Oh, John, but what will we do? We, you know, we, we've, we've got to confront him and we've got him to, because we, we think we can save him. I said, listen, don't confront him. I said, no, don't confront him. I said, no, 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 no. What you do is you get him to repeat the lie to you, mm. all right? John, you'll have to fly over from New York again. You get on a plane, come up. Okay, fine, you want to pay, pay me to do that? I'll go back there. So I fly over. I sit down opposite him, finally. And I say, well, listen, I'm just, just, just looking at the details here. just wanted to be sure that you were, we, we, I've got these things right. You were at this year, this and that. And then you were at Harvard for this year to that, this time to that time, right? You got that? Oh, yeah, yeah. And you know what he did? He was very, very clever. He said, uh, no, those, those months are not quite right, John. You're, you're missing by one month. He, uh, a little, little clever move on his part. Wow, this is interesting. I said, well, that's so interesting uh, because I spoke to the registrar at Harvard as part of my job to check everyone out. You understand <laughs> that. And they have got no record of you ever having attended there. And you, and you know what he said? He looks at me and he says, oh, yes, he said, I've had that problem with them before. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's so clever. Anyway, I said, well, fine, just get me the transcripts, mm. you mm. know, of your time there. I'd like mm. to see the more certificate. And you know what he says to me? This is, this is the guy says to me, he's getting paid a, a million pounds a year. He says to me, Oh, uh, I've got the sweatshirt. I've got the Harvard sweatshirt. He got his student sweatshirt. Uh, uh, really? Come on. It's, anyway, but, uh, loquacious. I've met so many people like that. Mm. And I sort of took it in, in my firm. Part of my thing was I, 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 I took delight in exposing those people. Mm. You know, mm. uh, I, like, okay, fine. Um, whereas most... Most headhunters, with the greatest respect, don't care. They, they, as long as the client likes the person, mm. then it's over to you. 
So I was older. Yeah, it becomes someone else's problem very yes, quickly. Yes, because I'm collecting a big mm. fat fee off this, mm. so mm. I don't want to. I, I, I don't want to ruin. It. So 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 anyway, that that was a thing that that distinguished me from everyone else, and ultimately, in a way, caused me to give up being involved in that because I, uh, it's just too tricky and. It's like, okay, I could make, I could do more good, I thought, working with the inmates. So, you know, that was, that was where all of a sudden my life sort of centered there. Mm. And I get some good books. So here's the thing. You got me worried now that I was a few minutes late to this interview, <laughs> by the way. I'm thinking, what are you thinking about me? Because I was a couple of minutes late. Um, well, uh, well. <laughs> Yes, I'm noticing that you're a fan of the Beatles right there, yeah, yeah. and that there's a road, and I presume the road leads directly into your heart, so, uh, <laughs> so I'm assuming that that's, uh, that that's a good thing. Mm. My wife and I and our granddaughter were on 90th Street. We had just got out of the Guggenheim Museum, and we're crossing the road when a big red bus, a tour bus, is on the side of the road there. We have to walk past it. And I hear a voice coming from the top of that. And I look up and I say, hey, Big Bear, is that you up there? Big Bear had graduated from my class and they called him Big Bear in the mm. class. If you saw him, you would know why they called him Big Bear. He looked like a big bear. Hey, anyway, he, he looks down at me and says, Hey, John, is that you there? He slaps, he slaps the side of the bus. Stop the bus! Stop the bus. Yeah, stop the bus there. And he says to everybody, that's John down there. He saved my life. Anyway, runs down the steps, comes out, gives me a hug. He gives me a Margaret a hug because he met her anyway. He said, is it okay you give your granddaughter? Yes, of course. I said, I said, I said, Big Bear, just to be clear, <laughs> I never saved your life. You saved your own life. All I ever did was share a few ideas with you, and the ideas uh, apparently worked for you. What are you doing now? He said, oh, John, I got the best job I ever had. He said, I never gave a speech until I landed in your class, and I never wrote a poem until I landed in your class. But now I'm the tour guide here. Whenever we stop at a building, I give a little talk. I'm giving a talk all over the city as we go. And whenever we stop at a building, I got a poem for every building. <laughs> he said, and I'm earning more with tips than I ever earned in my life. He, he served 16 years in jail. He's on the podcast as mm. well. And uh, anyway, big, he wrote a fantastic poem, which is in my book, um, um, How to Survive a Bullet to the heart. Mm. He's got the best poem in there. It's a complex poem. Black in the Hood. Oh, you've got to read that. It's amazing. It's mm. amazing. Anyway. Well, there's some amazing... Um, we should talk about that book because uh, there is some amazing stuff in that book. There is? Yeah. There it's, is? It's, it's. I mean, obviously, it's a, it came from and it's a tribute to the classes that we were talking about. And uh, you know, and the, the work that you did, but um, how did it actually come about? Okay, how it came about was Poetin, the librarian who had organised these these mm. uh, classes for me, 
she felt bad that I was just go, showing up there and not getting paid for anything at all. She said she contacted poets and writers and they would give 800 bucks, I think it was, if I would teach poetry to the class. And I said, okay, but I'll take whatever they give me and I'll use it to fund a book. And the book would be How to Survive a Bullet to the Heart. Okay, fine. So, so, so anyway, they were happy with that. And so I thought, okay, if I'm going to teach poetry, which I can do, you know, but then I want to fit it into the framework that we have. And so I see, okay, so you guys are going to give a speech, a, a speech on whatever it was and a poem. And the poem can be shorter, it can be longer, whatever it is. And so they, they came back the, the next week and I was stunned at the quality of the poems and I was stunned that they were reaching into their hearts in a way that they didn't do with the speeches. Mm. So the poems were really revealing. And I looked at that card, I looked at it there. This is amazing. And I said to this guy, Birch, who's in the book, I said, hey, Birch, do you see what's happening here? Yeah, Johnny said, it's magic. It's fucking magic. <laughs> well, he was correct. It was. It, it was magic. I thought, wow, this is interesting. So we're adding this to these ideas. So as I'm looking at it, I'm thinking to myself, okay, there's a book in this. There's a really good book. But I want you, I, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, so, so I take my thought and I say to the club, okay, you guys, here's the thing. Every week we're going to do a, a book on a subject. The subject will be the moment of my, the things that interest me, mm. you know, the things mm. that interest me. They might interest you, but they interest me. The moment of my crime, the moment of my arrest, the moment I went before the judge, the moment they carted me off to jail, what it was like when I, when I went to bed that night, what it was like when I woke up the next morning, what it's like serving the time, what it's like on visiting day. That's the first half of that book. And then the second half of that book is when they arrive in my class and we make sense of these things in a way that they had never seen before. I still remember after I said, we're going to do this poem, um, you're all going to do a poem on the moment of my crime. And Sheldon Arnold, 25 years old with 15 years left to serve on his sentence then, mm. <clears throat> he stands up, his poem, the moment of my crime, he says, oh, wait, I've got to get this right. Who am I? What have I become? I can't believe... Who are... Who are... Okay, again. Who am I? Who am I? What have I done? I can't believe I did that. What have I become? Why are those guys oozing red? That one looks just like he's dead. They're staring at me. Everyone, wherever did I get this gun? That was his poem. Mm. That was a, now, that's, that poem is amazing because that was the moment. That poem shows more clearly than I could that... 
in the moment of firing that gun, he didn't know what the he was psychological up to. disconnect. It, yeah. There's a total psychological, di- but in the it's very m- c- cinematic too. The, it the, is. the telling of it. Yeah. He comes. He comes to life. That's when he wakes up, not from a dream. Well, he wakes from a dream to find that he's mm. in the middle of a nightmare now. Mm. Uh, he was absolutely fantastic. That guy. Um, yeah, Sheldon Arnold, I remember him. And then the guy, there was um, Rivera, Andre Rivera. And we're speaking about racism now, which we, we, you know, which I did every time. Mm. And his poem on black and white issues, his poem was, his poem was um, Racism in the Ghetto. Racism in the ghetto was just another day. When it came to black and white, there were no shades of grey. I wised up to that jungle and tried to get away. Hey, not so fast, the devil said, and I was shred and lay, bleeding in a gutter with a bullet in my tray. First I saw black, then I saw white, but never shades of grey. Mm. Wow, Andre Rivera! What a fantastic guy he was. Yeah, he was. He was amazing too. It was like, okay, these these guys were. Um, and and then at the end of that, at the end of that year, at the end of that class, um, they they had a final word, and uh, and it was a word that I often used in if I'm ever giving a giving a speech anywhere uh, by this young guy. I uh, forget his name. It'll come back to me. Um, his poem was he was his poem. So so he's now saying goodbye to the prison. He will be out there the the next day. He's going to go out into the world after after having served for fifteen years or whatever it was in jail. And his poem was was to the sound of the Liberty Bell, which over there they say that it's that it that it that it says fair. Well, as the bell as it rings, mm. his poem was fair. His poem was farewell, and farewell sounds the liberty bell. Hearts assail the justice scale, but souls, my friend, are not for sale. This ark was made to sail. If you are afraid that you might fail, come follow me and will prevail. Farewell and farewell sounds the Liberty Bell. Mm. <laughs> what do you think of that? Wasn't that amazing? Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. Oh, and they're so... Um, they've got all of the right components of poetry, haven't they? They're so musical. Yes. So cinematic, you know, so uh, profound. Well, well, that was it. They, they were sitting on gold there and... Mm. Uh, uh, and I said that to them. You know, we've got we've got gold. Well, it goes back to my thing a little bit too. Of you're either a good writer or you've got a good story. And if you've got a good story, yeah. you can become a good writer. Yes. You know, that's a major way towards becoming a good writer is having a good story. So if you can tap into something, a great way to become a good writer is to have a good thing to say. Well, that, that's the key. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's what I mean. It's, it should be completely obvious, but yeah. it, but it kind of isn't. No, it isn't. Well, uh, I've read people that, that, that could actually write, and they could write extremely well, but they didn't have anything to say. Yeah, that's right. Said, oh, yeah. why that am happens. I reading this? Yeah, 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 yeah. 
right? that happens. That's right. And if you if uh, you become defined as a writer and you run out of things to say, what do you do next? <laughs> you know. And I think that's that's happened to some people. Yeah, well, it's it's true. A lot of people they've they've only got one one story in them, and and you know, I had a publisher said um, here actually said, oh, John, everybody, everybody, everybody says I've got a story in me. Uh, they don't. He said they think they have a story mm. in them, and they think they can write it. He said they they sit down to write the story. He said, you wouldn't sit down thinking that you could play the piano before you'd had a lesson. And writing a story is just as hard as that. Mm. And he said, there, there are things to learn. And anyway, I said to, um, I said to my other editor back in the States, my, my first editor there, I said, oh, well, Ken, uh, you know, everybody has a, has a gift. Uh, I'm talking about writers, yeah. I don't think so, John. <laughs> that was what he said. And I thought, i got to think about that. You know, he's saying about writing. I was saying, well, everyone's got their gift. Or I don't think mm. so, John. It was mm. like, some people just can't do this. And mm. so, uh, anyway, that, that was what he said. I've always assumed when I go into a class that everybody's as smart or smarter than I am, and certainly they know more about their lives than I will ever know and that I'm there I'm always there to learn from them mm -hmm. and so uh, it's uh, people get freaked out by the idea that someone's um, an expert in something but what people forget is that they're the expert in their own life so by that we're all experts in something you know every single person is the expert in their own life unless yeah. unless I guess they've checked out to some level where they no longer care but everyone is the expert in their own life so that's yeah a way well, to start isn't it if you look at someone like donald trump for example mm. do we have to uh, no no but uh, no, i mean just to your yeah, point yeah, yeah yeah here's a person that shows no self-understanding at, at all no but he's checked out like he checked out when he came in because he yeah. was brought up to believe that he didn't need to do anything um, because he was brought up to believe that they were instantly better. Yeah, it's like... Anyway, it's like... I, I don't think he can write anything. But to be fair to that guy, he can give a good speech. He can hold an audience. He has learnt to do... I mean, he, he's a funny from beginning to end. Yeah, but uh, that's his act of self-preservation, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. His, that's yeah. his way of controlling and not being fully found out. There are those of us that watch him and go, why isn't he being fully found out? It's all there. Yes, right. But when he opens his mouth, he's exposing himself. But there are people that are going, oh, he's charismatic, he's charming, he's a little bit funny, he's a rule breaker. And so he's tapping into all of that at the same time. And he's basically like like the gambling that he's influenced and and, and enabled in a lot of people. He's, he's playing the house. You know, he's, yeah. he's, he's, he's stacking the bet and rolling the dice and going, well, for everyone who uh, thinks I'm exposing myself, I'm winning a few people over. He's playing those odds perfectly. Yeah, and, and, and the thing is that a CEO will recruit people around him who are just as bad as he is or, mm -hmm. or, or even worse than he is. So mm -hmm. I, I think although people try to blame Trump, the people around him are just as bad or worse 
they know better. They are enabling him. They are the enablers. It's like, anyway, let's say 100%. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. He's not, oddly enough, my publisher asked me to write a book about him. And I said, and this was uh, way back early. Mm. And I said, I don't know. I said, there's not much to him. Yeah. And I don't think he's that interesting. I don't want to write that book. And uh, probably I should have written the book. Of, <laughs> I probably should have written the book about him. But but his book was how how smart is he? How smart is he? And um, he's he's as my wife said, he's a lot smarter than most people think. But he's not as smart as he thinks. Mm-hmm. You know. And uh, don't underestimate his cunning. You know, low cunning. Not that I want to get into him because yeah, yeah. he's actually not. So interesting. He's not very interesting. No, that's the funny thing. We spend a lot of time on him, um, and none of us really want to. But that's because we are perplexed by the damage that's unfolding under him, and so we want to hold him accountable, um, and we want to understand how he has escalated the mess. But the mess was already there before him. The system enabled him, and America was largely broken before he came in. Well, that's the truth. Yeah. No, it it, it was. I mean, that's why we left in the in the end. I, I said to someone, they said, "Well, why did you leave?" I said, "Well, listen, we went to America because we believed in the ideals of America, and that's why we left." <laughs> that's why mm. uh, left for the same reason that the ideals are aspirational but it soon became obvious that Mitch, Ma- Mitch McConnell and the people there mm. uh, they, they, they just stood in the way of Obama and they wouldn't do anything mm. they, they were only in it for the money and mm. for themselves and the ideals meant nothing to them mm-hmm. nothing whatsoever so the whole place when we were there in, in Obama's second term actually the third year of his second term or the fourth year it was, it was like amazing to watch it it was so depressing and, and Margaret and I looked at each other and I never expected to leave America. We were there for 38 years. I I am a citizen. We are citizens. I never expected to leave. And Mm. just one day we looked at each other and we said, it's time to go back to Wellington. (laughs) No, we did. We did. We did. It's going back to Wellington. Well, you raised uh, your family there, really, too. Yeah. So you've got American children. Yeah, they all... Yeah, no, they... Uh, Dean went to Harvard. Anthony went to Colum- Anthea and and Louise went went to Columbia. Jonathan went went to Vassar, so they they were all at the at the best schools and everything. And mm. uh, no, they they were they were steeped in it, <clears throat> um, and we were too. Um, but of course now they you know they're old enough to they're, they're all probably older than you are. Uh, yeah, yeah, they're all grand, but I mean. They, you know, they they were, were they all born in New Zealand or only a couple of them? All born in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but they went, you know, you moved there when they were still children. We, 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 we moved there, uh, I think uh, Anthony was 16, Dean yeah. was 14, Louise was 12, and yeah. Johnny was 10. So they're all very much living with you and being raised. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So they, yeah. they had their adolescence, or the second half of it in some cases, but they had their adolescence and their adulthood 
arriving to them in America and, and through America? Well, oh, first we went to Australia. We mm, were there for mm, seven years. Mm. And then, but when we went to, when we went to the States, um, you know, they... That, well, Dean played in Wellington for the first time in 2010 and said, this is the first time I've been back here to play. You know, which is amazing. And, and but played in the... Well, he had a story, didn't he, about playing in the town hall and remembering being there when he was about five or something. Oh, yeah, yeah, at an yeah. Orchestra, at, at a school orchestra event, which is an amazing story in and of itself. Um, and since we've started talking about your family, and I, I didn't know how comfortable you wanted to be about talking about them, and I'm here to talk about you, but they are a part of you, um, it's interesting how the writing has flown through your family. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, that well, must be something to be um, yeah. proud of. I mean, parents are proud of their children generally anyway, but it must be interesting to see that come out. I, in I thought forms. it was interesting when I read Dean's book, uh, Black Postcards. When I read that book, and, and to be fair, I, I sort of helped him with a little bit. Mm. Not that much, but he asked me some 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 questions and he said actually he said he said if it wasn't for my dad he said have a speech somewhere I would never written that book he said I had said to him keep notes Dean because one day he could write a book and yeah. keep the notes just little things because you anyway so, so he was asked to write that book but when I read the book I was quite shocked because the music that he loved wasn't his music mm. it was my music <laughs> I was mm. the one that was playing Glenn Campbell mm. that he loved. I mm. was the one that, like, okay, I was the one that was playing everybody's talking at me from from uh, from that movie. Midnight yeah, 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 Midnight Cowboy. Yeah, I was yeah. the one that was playing. I used to play that song over and over, yeah. and that was the song that was the song that he sang as the as the last thing without any orchestra. Any, anything of the final mm. concert he gave but yeah so I, I guess Dad, listen he's his own man mm, and, and he's done his own stuff and everything mm. um, and he's completely his own person uh, but but I was just intrigued it brought home to me that your children are listening to you when you're not even aware of it mm -hmm. and they're watching you when you're not aware of it and probably they're not aware of it either so you're absorbing something that's going on. Uh, he wrote his book, Jonathan won an Emmy, right? Mm. Uh, Louise has written her books, which are excellent. She got awards for those. Anthony she's can. A, she's a fantastic writer. Yeah. She is. No, she can yeah. actually, and she and she 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 always could write. Um, I can still remember when she was in in my office. She went there because I had the word processing mm. and. Um, she had written a story there, and I, th I think she asked me to look at it anyway for one reason or another, looking at it on the, on the computer screen. And I still remember that moment because the sentences were so perfect and crisp and short, mm. and they pulled you to the next sentence, to the next one, to the ne you couldn't stop reading it. And so that's what she can do. And uh, so anyway, she did that. You know, she can, yeah, I would like, I, I think her gift in that respect is greater than whatever gifts I might have, you know. Um, I've, I have 
I have always admired people that could do that. I think I've improved my writing. I mean, the more you work at it, yeah, the yeah. more you... Yeah, it's a discipline. That's a, a practice. So the more you put time in, you're going to get... You know, if, you've, if you're motivated to want to do it, and whatever luck you've had or gift that you have, you're only going to improve both those things if you spend time at the wheel, right? That's true of anything, pretty yeah, much. Yeah, I, I think what, what, what interests me is... When I wrote my first book, I was I, I wrote 1600, 1,600 words a day. Okay, just I just sat down and wrote them, 1,600 words a day. I counted them, and I did that for three weeks. But now I can't write. <laughs> I'm lucky if I can write 750 words mm. in a day. Um, it may be less, but my, my, my skills are, are sort of improved. I think, I think I can improve this. I keep, I, you know, you can, we've got to get it back, get it back, get it back. But having said that, sometimes, probably the best two lines I ever wrote were in my book, Chancy on Top, where someone's writing a letter to someone, the, the girl who's a po poet in it. Anyway, she writes a letter to Chancy, and, and by accident she... I, I can still remember when, when I wrote this thing and I'm looking at it, and she says, poets are permitted lies. There'd be no poets otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> and I, so I'm, I look at they, these, these lines appear on the page, and I, wow, look at that. I've got to repeat that. Mm -hmm. So I, I have the guy re actually re repeat the line in the book. Poets are permitted. L look what she's just said to me. Poets are permitted lies. There'd be no poets otherwise. What am I to make of this? Anyway, so I, but that, that may be the best thing I, I ever wrote. <laughs> and where it ever came from, who knows, right? Mm, mm. Right. I'm sure yeah. you've had the same experience. Oh, well, I was at, yeah. Every day, every day. Well, yes, yeah, sometimes. I'm probably nothing um, that matches that. But yes, sometimes you do, absolutely, you do wonder where the certain stuff comes from, which is the exciting and freeing thing about doing writing I think is being open to the idea that um, you know you're basically out there with a net chasing butterflies aren't you yeah trying to pin them down for a bit but also trying to let them you know let them free at the same time sometimes when you pin an idea down it doesn't look as good as it, it, as it does floating in the air well that's the truth and what, what I what I've most recently seen with again it, it has become clear to me. I can sit down to write something, mm. and I I actually know very well what I'm going to write. But that's not what happens. Suddenly, I see this other stuff comes <laughs> up, and I could go I go here with that, and we do this with that, do this with that. Wow! And so you never really. I would sit down. I don't at this point know what I'm going to write until I. Until I start. Mm. Uh, yeah, I've been I've been thinking about this idea lately um, that the concept of writer's block. I'm trying to turn it around and say that uh, it's a per for a start, I don't think it's something I've ever suffered of, and I think it's probably, I haven't suffered from it's it. It's probably either. something people have wished upon me um, that ha hasn't eventuated. But I'm trying to see it as I'm trying to turn it around and see writer's block as a positive thing, and say that actually. If I'm ever momentarily blocked, the blockage is because there's too many things that want to come out. And that's what's causing the block, is the bottleneck. And actually, I just need to 
go with the thing that comes out, access the thing that comes out and explore that. It isn't because the bottle's empty. I'm trying to sort of see that writer's block as a actually a positive thing. You're, you're blocked for a reason. You're, you're thinking too many things or you're trying to access too many things. So just allow something to come out and work with that. I think, I think it's because, yeah, so I'm, sure, I'm sure all that's true. Um, I think it's also because sometimes we don't know what we're going to write. We, we know a thing and it's struggling to come out. It, you, we haven't made the unconscious conscious yet. Mm. The, con- the unconscious is still working on this idea for you. Mm. Uh, I was, amongst other things, I was, I was helping people to deal with their depressions. And I've always thought I can learn things from people. So anyway, there was one wo- woman who was a, a, a severely depressed person, but she referred me to an article in Psychology Today. And, okay, well, I'm going to read this article because she said it read. And it said that depression, people get depressed for um, because they're trying to solve a problem that is so deep that they can't understand it. And so the depression is a way of closing the mind down and the body down, everything down, while the brain works on this issue. And I thought, that's a good idea, isn't it? Uh, so so I, I think if, you, if you're working on something that... And, and also, where I used to write a column every month, and... Um, and I, and it was hard, 1,300 words, only 1,300 words, but 1,300 words was hard. And um, I'd think, oh, I'd start to, oh, I don't know where this is going. I, I can't do this. Oh, God, it's, just hopeless. it's totally hopeless. I don't know. And then I'd get on with it. How are they going to end this? And, I didn't, and suddenly the ending would pop up like that. The brain is always ahead of you. The brain had already seen to the ending of this mm. thing, even though I, ha- I had not, you know? Mm, mm. So I could show you, it's like, wow, this is amazing. And so the books that I wrote, where, where I thought the book would end here, no, no, the brain says you, you can't end it there because mm. we've got this other ending that's coming up that you don't know anything about yet, <laughs> you know? Yeah, totally. It's amazing how the form kind of picks itself too with writing, I think. You know, I, I, in my book that's just come out, there's two prose poems in it, and one of them... I wrote it many years ago as a block of text, as a prose poem, essentially as a, a really a paragraph-long short story. I really wanted it in the book, so I tried to sneak it past my publisher by breaking it up and turning it into a poem, <laughs> and she instantly found me out. She looked at it and went, that doesn't work. Have you thought about turning that into just a block of text? It would read better as a prose poem, and I was like, busted. That's exactly what it was. Let's put it back. And I loved being busted, you know. I was like, that's amazing. Like, that means she's very good at her job. Very, and a very good um, she said spotter. You she just said, "You've that would work better as a, have you ever thought about it? And I said, that's what it was. I tried to sneak it by you yeah. by turning it into a poem. And I'm very happy to have it in the book as a prose poem because I haven't got one and that's what it should be. So you have, so you have it as a... Just as, as a, a as a paragraph, just as a sort of block of a, text, and yeah. Book. So I just switched it back. Yeah, I think it was Hemingway. It was either him or his daughter. Anyway, it was somebody of the name of Hemingway said, "The secret of great prose is that it is actually 
poetry. Mm. <laughs> the secret of mm. great poetry. It's, mm. it's actually poetry, and 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 I've I've, I've always thought that that uh, and e and even with my podcasts, if you're listening to, uh, I tell you, um, um, Carmel McGlone. Mm. You know her. She's an she's actress. An actress. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know. Who, I know her work. An yes. actor. Actor. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, she's a very said, good one. Yeah, no, she. And she said, you know, she listened to my podcast. She said, John, it's jazz. It's jazz. You're, you're doing, she, mm. said, she said, you're doing jazz. Mm. And I said, okay, I've got to think about that. But it's true. There's, a, there's an underlying rhythm to the whole thing, actually. And uh, even to telling the story, mm. you've got to get this thing. And so the thing is... Someone said, you've know, got to keep... Oh, I like the remark of Lee Childs. I uh, was interviewed, but you know, he wrote all these books, mm. uh, everything Jack himself. Jack Reacher. Yeah, 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 the Jack Reacher stuff and, and all that. Which I've never read, but, um, yeah, they sell well. Uh, well, okay. So he's interviewed by the New York Times, and, and then they did a long fe feature uh, on him in the New Yorker as well. And I think in the New York Times interview, they said to him, listen, listen, you've written all these best-selling books. What's the secret? Well, he said, any writer at all will be happy to tell you that the secret is, it's like baking a cake, that you've got to get the right in <laughs> ingredients and you've got to put them together and you've got to make that cake perfect. I remember there was some guy who read my book Worked for me, worked for my firm in in Australia. They've recruited me. It was a big time rugby player, and I flew out from New York to be there. And my book, you know, Secrets of a Corporate Headhunter, had just mm. been published, and it, and it was a glitzy book, which de deliberately set a scene and everything. Mm -hmm. And um, so, anyway. He had been given by the manager of the office a copy of that book to read, as everybody had. So then I, I flew in from New York, and, and I get to meet him. And he, he looks at me, he says, oh, you're John Wareham. How, how disappointing to meet you. <laughs> how disappointing to meet you. And then he, the, oh, I'm... He said, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean that. I said, of course you meant that. <laughs> I understand. Mm. I understand what, why. Because a book creates a picture, and the author can, can very seldom live, live up to the picture in the book. And, and so the normal thing, if you meet any author, would, 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 be, the, would be exactly the feelings that you mm. have. Okay? Mm. So don't give them a thought. But do think about this. Whatever you think about me I'm still the person that wrote the fucking book <laughs> <laughs> well anyway that, but that, that's the truth about any any author isn't it yeah you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they may they may look anyway I, I wasn't <laughs> yeah no totally I mean that's the, that's the funny thing about about meeting your heroes about that whole idea meeting the people behind the work is you know again is that is that going to enhance the experience is that a good idea and for a lot of people sometimes it isn't 
um, you know, because it's a separate thing. Meeting the person, meeting the person, isn't meeting the work. In a way, it is, but it's not. No, you no. Know, uh, but I think people get that confused. Mom said. Mom said it was. He says dangerous to let the public behind the scenes mm. because it was not you that they loved it's the work mm. and when they get to see you they you know you, you seem like just an ordinary person mm. and um but that's the point well, one of the things that i that i taught in the prison you, you know when i was saying to get re mm. re religion out of the equation i read this book um which was called um Confu uh, was called christ buddha confucius and Th and 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 Socrates, if I can get Socrates out. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, I read that book. But the author had said in in introducing the book, it was an excellent little book, excellent book. He said it's a big mistake to think of Christ and Buddha and these all these people as being gods. Mm. What makes them great is not that they were gods, but that they were human beings and that their consciousness was so far ahead of everything that it lives on now. That's what makes them great. Mm. So in my class to deal with religion, I actually taught Buddhism and I taught, I taught Islam and I taught Christianity and I taught atheism. And, uh, the, and and I would say to the guys in the class, so, so what's the big idea in the middle of Christianity? What's the big idea? Well, of course, they, John has, has sacred text. So no, forget about being a sacred text. You know, it's just the work of some guy. But what, there's some big ideas in there. Let's talk about the big ideas in there. And so at the end of it, they could, in, instead of being stuck in one thing, now they could integrate Christianity and Buddhism mm. and Islam and atheism, you know, get the whole thing in, in a picture. So now you've got a way of seeing the world, which is, you know, greater than you had before. And you can, you know, pull it all together, a complex cognitive structure. Mm -hmm. That's what I was delivering, really. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, and I was very successful in, in imparting that to people that had never even completed high school, you know. Mm. So, because people, that's what they want to learn. You know, that's yeah. what they want to learn. Yeah, yeah. They, they, okay, that's, what, that's what's the most interesting. And yet most people go through their lives never having a discussion, never having a decent discussion about anything, right? Mm. So for me, when I went there, this is a chance to get some really good stuff going and see what people think about, you know? Yeah, totally. That was it for me, yeah. Yeah, wow. yeah. yeah. Um, we've covered, I feel like, just Too a much. Well, yes, <laughs> yes, maybe, but I feel like we've covered just a tiny, tiny um, glimpse of some of the things you've done and been involved in. As I don't want to sap your... Uh, energy for the entire day since you've got several books left in you um, yeah. but is there anything you wanted to touch on that we should have talked about do you think I've really enjoyed this conversation um, I, I, yeah, probably <laughs> um, I need to I'm yeah I guess the thing I was going to ask you was um, 
what it's been like reintegrating with New Zealand and what um, you have felt about what goes on, like what's different about what goes on here in terms of prison and so forth. Like if you come back with lots, yeah. of, lots of frustrating ideas to try and put into place here and... Yeah, well, probably... Okay, so... Yeah, no... Okay, when it comes to the prison thing here, that... We've just had an election. Mm. And the key problem here is well, what's going on in the prisons, but nobody mentioned it. No one wants to mention it. The National Party passed it over to the private prison industry, which treats inmates as human flesh to be mm. warehoused. Mm. That's all it is. Keep them for as long as you can, as little as you can, and don't teach them anything because that's ex- expensive. And, and so the prison... The prison the private prison industry, as far as I can tell, really has to be run by sociopaths. You know, you just have to be mm. to be any good at that industry Mm-mm. as it is right now. The Labour Party wants to reform the system and they want to make it work, but with the best will in the world, they don't quite know how to do that, and so they fall into a series of traps. And I've got to to get them in in order. The first, I suppose, is to assume, you get people say, okay, 50% of the people in jail are Maori. So something's wrong with the Maori that you know we have to put them on their own. We have to treat them as, in their in their own. Uh, we've got to we've got to have have separate classes for these people. These people. These people. Um, and I say to that, you know what? The problem is not the colour of the skin or the ethnicity. The problem that you're looking at is that these people are in the lowest socio-economic rung. They are committing their crimes out of need. Out of need. <laughs> That's why they're there. You can either look at the colour, because you've got the same problem in the States. <laughs> and again, you see it clearly. Okay. Now, th- this is not to demean what has happened to them as in- individuals. They- they've been... Uh, been harmed growing up and everything but as soon as you say that one class of people for one reason or another is either inferior or superior to someone else this is racism Mm -hmm. it's out and out racism you know now um i i had a i had a a client in the in the in, in the states who referred me a woman to help and and I said so what's the what's your issue you know I'd like to speed, speed this along as much as I can and he said oh John unfortunately she's one of those people who excludes herself and then she complains that she's not included <laughs> right okay all right 
you see whole ethnic groups exclude themselves and then complain that they're not in, included. In my class, what I was teaching at the end of the day was we're all citizens of the world. We're citizens of the world. And now in, in order to get that across, you had to deal with racism in a different way, mm. but to show that it was just one more thing that we all have to negotiate out there and that when you get out of jail, let's say this, guys, when you get out of jail, i got bad news. There are brambles and there are poisonous spiders, uh, people driving their cars too fast, and there's racism out there. And we all have to negotiate these terrible things because they're not going away in a hurry. Mm. But I have to do that. It may be easier for me to negotiate that, that than for you. But if you want to not come back here, you've got to negotiate it as well. Okay, so let's take that race thing out of the equation and look at what's happened, all right? So then, every country, every country will try to incorporate its own religion into the prison system in order to save people from sin or whatever they're saving them from. They'll put their own religion there. Well, okay, and, and, and so here now, uh, well, you know, the, so they'll have the uh, come to Jesus thing. Was it? I was here for a while. If it's Islam, it's Islam or whatever. And so here now, it's the Te Ao Maori world view. Well, I quite like that worldview because it's closer to atheism than the other religions, and it doesn't have a supreme being, being or anything, and they don't have the concept of sin. So I think that's a pretty good idea. But the problem with religion is the problem with religions when you put them in the in the in the in the prison class is that they exclude the most important advances of psychology, which have happened all in the last one hundred years. Mm -hmm. Right. So so the problem with ancient wisdom is that it is ancient, right? Mm. It is ancient. Mm. But with the things we've learned. And so that's what I was teaching in my class. Uh, the, these things as, as well as uh, religion. And then I say, okay, well, the problem is, the problem with these people, whoever these people happen to be, is they're drug addicts. They're, they're so easy. And wait, wait a minute. No, 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 no. They are self-soothing. This is a symptom, not a cause. Admittedly, some, some people are genuine addicts and they need to be treated visited as such, but in my experience, 80% of them are not. The 80% of the people that say that they are, are not. And that it's, and that what they're doing is they are self-soothing because they can't get what they want from life. They mm. can't earn the income that they need or whatever. So, so you, you get the, you get the, um, the and, and then they say, okay, then we say, finally, here, we're going to have a war on gangs. You remember the war on gangs? Mm -hmm. war, we're having a war on gangs. Well, the war on gangs is going to wind up the same way as the war on drugs. Mm. You know? The gangs, you, you know what they say? Bring it on. We love this. We, we're getting attention. It's like a drug for us, and fuck you, you know? Mm -hmm. So you can't win that war. Mm. You, you can't win that war. The reason people form a gang is to prepare for a fight. So having a war on gangs is fucking ludicrous. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's, that's right. So you get the one, two, three, four things right there. What should we do? Well, this is, this is what I say. 
Don't fight the gangs. Mm. Emulate the gangs. Emulate the gangs. The gangs, if you happen to be a Maori and you go into prison, there'll be someone there to meet you and say, wait a minute, we need to help you get through this, this, this whole thing. You're in some danger here and we'll look after you while you're here. And we'll teach you a skill so that when you get out of here, you'll be able to earn an income. And when the guy served his time and, 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 and we'll be a happy band of brothers here. Mm. When you get out, when you get out, we'll have someone meet you on the outside and take you home and give you the love that you need. And we'll show you how to earn an, an income. We'll, we'll, we'll develop a marketable so, skill for you. Unfortunately, it's going to be an illegal skill. But that's what the gangs. If if we would inculcate, hmm. if we would show that same love. So you're talking about integrating the rehabilitation and the punishment, rather essentially, rather than keeping them separate, what rather than the punishment being prison and then going to some form of rehabilitation does not work. Oh, no, no, see, that, that's, that's what I think is a giant mistake, mm. that you've got them in the prison. No, I would turn the prisons into universities or yeah, yeah, yeah. learning centres, actually, and say, okay, we're going to bring you here. You've got nothing else to do. Yeah, that's what I say. So the punishment, in inverted commas, and the rehabilitation, in inverted commas, are actually working together. Yeah, well... In a way, you know, they're, they're serving it, they're being served at the same time. I don't even like the word re re rehabilitation, actually, mm -hmm. because it's like, okay, like I'm saying to these guys in my class, I, I don't want to change you. I mm. want you to be the person that you know in your heart that you are. Mm. And for you to get out there and earn an income without causing any harm to anyone else. That's that's all it is. So I'm not here to change anything about you. Mm. You know, I'm here to... to, to and, 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 so, and so I think... Uh, I wouldn't call it a rehabilitation. I'm, I'm going to share with you a new way of seeing the world, which is, which is going to help you. We're going to share some ideas. Now, these ideas... And so some people they say, oh, you know, you know what we've got to do is we've got to give these people a university degree. You say, okay, they don't need a university degree for Christ's sake. It's like you're wasting a lot of time and effort here now. A four-year degree, a three-year degree, etc. Sure, it's a great thing to have and everything, but the ideas you need can be imparted in 13 weeks. You know, that's been my experience, and. Uh, Obviously, some people need some more, but emulate the gangs, turn the prisons into learning centers, reward the staff for producing taxpayers, taxpayers, reward the staff for producing taxpayers, reframe the thing. So we're not now running a warehouse operation, we're producing taxpaying citizens. That's that's what I'd be doing, mm. and uh, you know, I've, and again, we're 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 only scratching the surface of that. But when people start off with a wrong idea, a wrong idea that that the 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 cure is to bring someone to Jesus, or the cure is to send them to a drug rehab, God knows what they're teaching in the drug rehab thing, and most of it won't won't work. Almost all of these programs have got the same thing in common, they don't work. Here in the prisons as well, um, the prison population went from 5,000 to 10,000, and they said yeah, 10,000, and uh, recently apparently it's gone down to 9,000. 
but that's the part of the story you hear. Mm. The other part of the story that they don't tell you is that 5,000 people have been, are on ankle bracelets and are confined to home. That's what we're doing with the, the whole thing is still out of control. Mm. And it's so hard for the politicians to deal with it because you've, you've got this force here that says, there's nothing wrong with the individuals in prison. We need to change the circumstances outside the prison. We, we need to give them houses and we need to make sure that they've got this and that and the other end. So we give them houses and food and stuff and everything. Okay, well, I'm in favour of a guaranteed basic in income. But just the same, any real change comes from the heart and the mind, not from the... It's like... like Rehabilitation can't be inflicted on anybody. It can't come from the outside. It's got to come from the inside. Mm. Comes from the inside. And where does it come? It begins. It begins with the head. It gets to the heart. It gets to the hands. And then a person says, "Hang on a minute. If it's to be, it's up to me." You know, it's like <laughs> getting a hold of that. But having the skills to be able to make that work, that's what we need to be doing. Anyway, don't get me on about this subject. You can see I'm, I'm, I'm utterly hopeless. No, it's, I mean, it's fascinating. And it's nice to talk to someone who has some actual framework and ideas for that around what could change rather than just uh, we need change, which is what right. was so often said. And, and here's the thing. People say, oh, John, you're so innovative and your ideas are so creative, but they're a little scary. So wait a minute. I've been teaching these ideas for 20 years and they actually have been proven to work. Yeah. What are you doing? What are you doing that's got anything like the like the results that I have achieved? That, that, this is not a, a newfangled wild idea. These are proven ideas. Tested, yeah. It's like, oh, give me a break. <laughs> anyway, if you listen to that thing, the, I would say the final part podcast yeah. what if you stumble mm. there's some good stuff there there's some yeah, good definitely. stuff there yeah no i mean i'm looking forward to going back and listening to some if not all of those episodes again because they you know and it's funny you brought it up that there is a a definite jazz rhythm to the way not just you narrate but the whole or you present but the whole um feel of each episode has that and i guess what it is is uh you know we were talking about this much earlier but the the rhythms of jazz are are a form of conversation jazz is a conversation so it's well, a, you know it's, yes, it's interesting to think of jazz influencing an actual conversation because the whole thing about jazz is it's a series of conversations the interplay between the musicians the interplay between the the call and response not just between the musicians on stage but between the musicians and the audience it's this yeah. actual conversation that's unfolding the whole time, which I think is why jazz is sometimes a little bit of a dirty word to some people because they feel like it's smarter than them. You know, to go back to your thing you said, you know, people people like to learn things, but people don't like to be told told, and they don't right. like to they don't like the idea that it's being reinforced that they're one of the dumber people in the room. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I always say there, there were there were no dumb people in the room no. ever as far ever ever as far as I was concerned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's like okay, it doesn't matter who it is. I can always well, actually, you know, it's quite uh, the other thing is it's actually quite nice 
as I've found today, to be the dumbest person in the room. You know, it's good. It's like, it's you know, don't you want to learn? I do. That's why I have these conversations, you know. I like to find people that have got stories that they can tell me that I'm interested in. That's how you work things out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm still thinking about your other questions. Is there anything I'd like to... Mm. I, I, I've got so many things to do now. I've got so much stuff that I could do, and you get caught between writing uh, I, I would actually say that's a problem that if you can write you know it takes a block of time yeah and you get to a certain age and you say wait i've only got so much time left i better i better work out what i'm doing on my day yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, far more than you ever did before. So, uh, mm, mm. so as uh, said to someone, well, you, that po- poem, um, I have, I have promises to keep and miles to go before mm. I sleep by Robert Frost, right? But you know what that po- poem is about? That poem, the poet is standing, looking at a forest. In winter, it's snowy, and he's contemplating suicide. In the end, he decides not to commit suicide because I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. <laughs> you like that? Yeah. So it's okay. Anyway, that, that was... Uh, most people know that, and, and I think... Don't know that... And uh, I think, okay, I've got, I've got some things that, that I feel I just have to get them down. Mm. But, but then you just have to make sure you do it. And it's, um, anyway, it's good. It's good. Well, this has been a good chat. And it's been a nice way to, uh, to get some, some snapshot of the many things that you've, you've done and touched on in your life. Well, I just want to say about your book, your po- poems, I, I thought they were absolutely outstanding. Wow. Well, thank no, you. no, 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 no. But but for me, and and even then, you know, like when you were there there at the at the fringe the other night, mm. and um, I I never met you before, mm. of course. Mm. And I'm I'm thinking, here's this guy back here, and he's sort of on his own, and I don't know what to make of him looking at. He arrived 15 minutes late. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, I don't know what. I don't know what to make of him, and then I spoke with you briefly, and I thought, I don't know, I'll see what he's like when he gets up on the stage, you know, we'll see. And then you, you turn, and you get up there on the stage, and bang, Yeah. wow, <laughs> this is this is something. This guy's got this stream of consciousness thing going that pulls someone right in, and he's flipping through the book and reading the stuff, and the poems themselves are colloquial and straightforward they seem to be straightforward but of course they're not that you know there's so much going on with each and every one of those poems I thought wow and then you gave me the book and I brought it home and I and have it next to my bed actually and I and I started reading that I read the first half of that wow this is fantastic what a gift this guy's got it's like it's like wow and so it was like I thought I've got to go back to James K. Baxter. You know, I've got to go back to Baxter when I... And even then, even then, he wasn't as colloquial as you are. 
seeming to be mm, colloquial, mm, mm. you know. And so I thought this is this is this is something very special that you've got going here. And uh, I would never underestimate it. But 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 when you stood on the stage to speak, I was I was reminded afterwards. Came back into my mind. I went to hear Kiri to Carnival. She came mm. to New to New York, and she sang at the Brooklyn Academy of. BAM, the Brooklyn Academy of Music, I think, mm. right? And uh, so Ma- Margaret said, my wife said, we should go and hear her. I said, oh, I'm so busy, I've got stuff going on. Are you sure we want to get and go all the way to Brooklyn? Uh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're going to do it, John. So I go out there. I had a busy day. I'm exhausted. The first half of the concert, they played, they said, Marla or something. And I oh, almost got to sleep. And, uh, and, and I'm looking at my watch. And then it's in, in intermission, and I come back and I thought, oh, look at my way, when can we get out of here? I know here? this feeling. <laughs> and, yeah, when can we get out of here? And then, and then, Kiri Takanoa, Kiri Takanoa walks out on the stage, yeah. dressed in blue, and bang, she just brought you to life. She brought the whole place to She hadn't even sung a word. She hadn't sung a word. But as if something walks in the door with her, and that's what I felt when I, when you were there. I thought, wow, look at this. You don't often see that, but by the way, wow. That, that's no, no, now, it, now we're uh, running the risk of, you know, I should have turned this recorder off a long time ago, <laughs> arguably, but certainly a couple of minutes ago when you started saying these nice things, I should have turned that. But that's the artist ego. Is there's no way I'm going to turn the recorder off. But well, I do. Uh, I'll just say thank you very much for that. That's very kind. Uh, of I'm going to say it because it's true. But it, no, no. <laughs> but listen, it's like, yeah, it's the. I've been judging these things for years. You, you know, I've been I've been looking at these things and. And 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 as I say, the these beaches in the jail, and then it, everyone I taught went on to win something, and so anyway, so I'm used to making that judgment, and so wow, like I, I see it, it's like it's a gift, and who knows? But you you can't see it, I'm sure, because because you can't see it and do it at the same time yeah. anyway. You, you just be well, like me, me who you are. Well, like most people that are doing anything, I'm just hoping it's okay. You know, I'm just I'm just doing it. Yes, and, going. Right. and so, you know, I have, uh, like, I love that um, first thing I saw when I came in here is the thing on your printer. Be so, be so good they can't ignore you. Yeah, like that. And, yeah, yeah, I love that. And I guess that's been my hope with any of the things I've done. And... Um, you know, you, you you live and die by um, uh, whatever you've last written, whatever interview you've last done, whatever um, reading or whatever you know, whatever it is you've last done. You live and die by that a little bit, but you hope that you know be 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 undeniable. You know, be be good enough that it resonates on a level where people. All I'm really hoping for is someone to go, well, that wasn't shit. <laughs> which you've which you've more than done, you know. So for me, so I <laughs> think well, you no, very kindly. Think, but no, again, it, it's like it's it's important to to own, you know. The, I'm sure you didn't get your book published, because you know they wouldn't have published it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so, so you know, they thought it was great, obviously. And the fact that you got up there and you did it, it was like okay. 
I've seen, a, I've heard a lot of people read the poetry. I've heard a lot of people read the poetry. Mostly, I, I prefer to go home, you know, it's, ah, oh, please. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel the same way, yeah. Yeah, right, but no, this this was really absolutely electric. I. That's, oh. what, that's what I thought anyway. It's very kind. I'll book you in for the next time I do a reading and you, I'll give you some um, pom-poms and, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, some, yeah, okay. some, some, fire, some sky rockets you could light up. <laughs> that would be my pleasure. That would be my pleasure. But yeah. no, I was, uh, I was uh, well, this is pretty amazing. So I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely, uh, I'm, I'm thrilled you came around today. Yeah, and I'm thrilled you're loving the book. I've, I've loved many yeah. of your books. It's, it's really nice to, to properly meet. We've had a couple of emails in the past and then yeah, we had that chat the other week and I've long wanted to talk to you for this. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Most of the time I'm clear focused all around Most of the time I can keep both feet on the ground I can follow the path I can read the sign I can stay right with it When the road unwinds I can handle whatever I stumble upon I don't even notice She's gone Most of the time Thank you.